This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season will bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to tell you about a helpful resource from Discipleship.org about church culture. It's a primer to the Discipleship.org book called Disciple Making Culture by Brandon Gindon, and you can download this primer for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. This free download gives you a high-level overview of the full-length book, and it helps you to connect with the general message of the book. It also inspires you toward changing the culture at your church to help your people make disciple-making something you are, not just what you do. So go to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Disciple Making Culture Visual Introduction. Today we're featuring an episode from Replicate and their track at the National Forum called Disciple Making Next Steps. You've implemented, now what? The episode for today is called Overcoming Obstacles to Sustain a Disciple Making Movement featuring Robbie Gallaty. Uh, so our track uh, is basically, one of the things we built our ministry on is the fact that I used to go to a lot of conferences like this for disciple making, and I would realize that great, uh, I was encouraged theologically, I was challenged practically to, to make disciples, but I did not know how to do that applicably in my church. And so I was ready to make disciples, I just didn't know how to do it. And so I've had the privilege uh, over the past... Um, 14 years of pastoring three different churches. So I'll tell you my quick testimony just so we know uh, just kind of why I'm so passionate about discipleship. And then we'll get into a very practical, I've never spoke this section before. This is brand new for this uh, conference. And I'm going to give you five obstacles in ministry that I've encountered in making disciples in the church. And then I'm going to give you five solutions. Okay. Um, And uh, I want to make it really, really practical. So let's pray. And then, uh, and if you're coming in, you can still come in. We have seats up here. Um, all right, let's pray, and, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the great salvation we have in Christ. We thank you for the mystery of the gospel, Christ living within us. We thank you, God, that the men and women in this room have chosen to make your final words their first work. And so we pray you spark a revival in our hearts today that we'd go back and see and say that we can do this thing called discipleship. Uh, You've commanded us, you expect it from us, and we want to be obedient to that. We love you, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think we have some books. Uh, Jonathan, do you all have any copies? Or any of the guys with me in the room? No. Jonathan, uh, I think I have some books I want to give away too. so um, I was raised Roman Catholic, very religious, uh, New Orleans, South Louisiana. We went to church every Sunday. If we missed church on Sunday, went to confession on Saturday. Uh, so, so we weren't, uh, we weren't Christers, right? Christmas, Easter only. Um, uh, but I didn't know the Lord. So I knew God as this authoritative, dominating uh, father who was out to chastise me every time I got out of line. Anybody grew up thinking God was like that? Um, it doesn't just happen to the Catholic church. It happens in a number of churches. But um, I didn't have a relationship with the Lord. I knew who he was, but I didn't have a relationship. Got a scholarship to play basketball at UNC Greensboro. Decided to go because of the girl I was dating to William Carey College in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, anybody, yeah, anybody heard of that school? Yeah, neither did I. So <laughs> uh, I didn't even know who William Carey was. And um, got a scholarship to play basketball there. Heard the gospel, rejected the gospel, and realized that I was the, one of the few Catholics, Roman Catholics, on a Southern Baptist campus. And if you don't know what that means, I was the target of every evangelism class on campus. Uh, there was a game I didn't know about called Convert the Catholic, where I was the bullseye, and uh, they were out to get me. Uh, but I heard the gospel in 1995. I would remember that seven years later. So just kind of a side note. Don't ever underestimate the power of the sown seeds of the gospel into the hardened hearts of men and women. I was the last person to ever come to faith in Christ. But I would remember that. So fast forward in my life, I got out of college. I started to train Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is kind of like a UFC. Anybody familiar with like the UFC? 
So I'm 6'6 back then, 290 pounds. I'm training to fight. A guy asked me one night at a restaurant, he's like, would you be interested in being the head bouncer of my club downtown New Orleans in the middle of Mardi Gras? <laughs> so let me get this straight. You're going to pay me to fight? I'm in, right? It seemed like a great business venture for me. So I did that. I uh, did that for three months, had a guy pull a gun on me, and I realized I needed a career change. So I made a lateral move from bouncing to bartending. It seemed like a good move at the time. <laughs> Uh, I was coming home from work, November 22nd, 1999. 18-wheeler comes across two lanes of traffic in the city of New Orleans. The high-rise kind of comes together, and my car got hit, uh, rear-ended 65 miles an hour by an 18-wheeler, sandwiched my car in the guardrail. My uh, seatbelt locked, my back torqued. I herniated two discs in my neck, two discs in my back. And uh, I went home at 22, never taken drugs before in my life, with four things. Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And you know the story. Um, within, within three months, I was addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I was just on a, a local television show just before I came here, and the lady was like, three months? You were addicted to drugs? And I said, ma'am, the statistic now is you can be hooked on Oxycontin in six days. Six days. I was addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I, didn't, I couldn't work. I couldn't make money. I just wanted to get high. And so I had this insatiable desire. A friend of mine in the city said, hey, why are you fooling with pharmaceutical drugs? You can buy street drugs. You can buy heroin and cocaine. You can buy it in bulk, bag it, sell it, make money. So I took the business knowledge I had from the world, brought it into the drug world. Long story short, three years of my life, I was addicted to heroin and cocaine. I had a $200 a day habit, robbed my own family for $15,000, hit and run, stole from my parents, Lost everything, lived without gas, electricity, and water for about three months. Two rehab treatments, and finally, long story short, 2002, November 12th, just 17 years ago, almost to the day, I was in my room desperate. And some of you have been there. Um, I wish I would say I had this robust theology of Christology and the gospel, but I, but I didn't. I, I took the little bit of faith I had and I put it in as much of Christ as I knew and I got radically saved. I mean, radically saved. Like the day God saved me back then, I knew I was going into ministry. Like I just knew. I knew I was going to go into ministry. So I told my dad, he's Catholic at the time, and I said, Dad, I just want to tell you, God's calling me to preach. My dad looks up from the recliner. He's thinking, what are you smoking? You know, he didn't even have a category for that. He's like, preaching. What do you? He's like, son, how are you going to be a priest by being married? You know, how are you going to get married? I was like, Dad, I'm not going to be a priest, you know, the necktie and all that. Um, but I wandered for the next eight months. I didn't know how to read the Bible. I didn't know how to memorize Scripture. I didn't know I should. And I'm at church one Sunday by the providence of God. I'm in New Orleans, and there's a seminary student who looks about 12 <laughs> by the name of David Platt. If you've, anybody heard of David Platt? Yeah. Uh, David Platt was a seminary student, and David... Basically comes to me and he says, hey, would you be interested in studying the Bible, memorize scripture and praying and meeting every week? I said, David, I'd love to. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet? And for the next two years of my life, David met with me twice a week, every week to disciple me. And people say, what was it like to be discipled by David? Um, we probably talked about the finer tenets of eschatology and soteriology and justification by faith, but I can't remember any of those things. Here's what I remember. I remember him challenging me to memorize the book of Romans with him, which we did. I watched the way he loved his wife. I, he gave me a passion for the nations to unapologetically preach the word. So you know from discipleship, and here's a great principle. You can't expect from others, here's a great discipleship principle, what you're not emulating yourself. Amen? So you can't expect pastor for your people to be in discipleship if you're not. You can't expect your kids to read the word, Dad, if you're not. Mom, you can't expect your kids to love Jesus if you're, you see what I'm saying? So it's a kind of a principle I learned. So I say all that, say I'm a product of discipleship. So if the guys are here with me, Jimmy, are my guys out there at all? <laughs> Tell Jonathan to come in here for a second. Sorry. I've got, I just wrote a book about this. came out last week. Do we have any of the books? Can you go bring some books up, please? I'm just going to give away a couple books. My life story just came out. Um, David Platt writes the forward, and his opening line is, what do you do when a former drug addict, alcoholic, MMA, drug thieving, 6'6", 290-pound man asks you to, to disciple him? You try to, here's his line, you try to be his friend as soon as possible. <laughs> so, and you got to say it, David's like this big. So anyway, okay, that's not what I want to talk about. Okay, what I want to talk about is uh, obstacles uh, that I've experienced in 15 years of discipleship. The three churches I've pastored, the first church was 65 people. 
Uh, it was a church about to close the doors. They literally, I think, took a chance on a three-year Christian who had a former drug addict and alcoholic past. And I went in and I said, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to make disciples and I'm going to preach the word. And God exploded the church. It was a combination of my testimony and a couple of things. And then I took that model to Brainerd Baptist Church, which is a little larger church, about 800 plus when I got there in Chattanooga, Tennessee, did the same strategy there. And God, by his grace, the church grew, not only numerically, but spiritually. And then now I'm at a church called Long Hollow Baptist, which is um, about 40 minutes north of here. Very, very different, larger church, slower kind of moving ship. But God, by his grace, is doing the same thing. And here's what I want to encourage you guys with. This is not something I created. Like, I don't have a monopoly on making disciples. So we know it's going to work. And here's what I tell pastors and, and leaders. Jesus' message was inspired. We believe that, right? But I want you to get this. His method was inspired. And what do I mean? We always want to hear the words of Jesus, which is good. And we want to be under the teaching of Jesus, which is great. But have we ever stopped to look at the model Jesus gave us for raising up leaders and disciples? So that's what I did. I started to study that model. And uh, some of the things I'm going to share with you are from that. Okay, here's the first obstacle. Write it down. The first obstacle I found in 15 years of discipleship is having a problem getting people on board to the vision. I know that doesn't happen in your church, but I've heard of it happening. It's a joke, right? <laughs> right? Okay, so what's the answer? The answer is to understand who the people are in your church, okay? So I'm going to give you a diagram. I want you to draw this diagram. And this is a diagram I got from a friend of mine named Will Mancini. And Will has been generous enough to let me use this. And we, te we teach with this diagram, but it's such a great diagram to think about people. Now, he uses it for vision, but we use it for discipleship. So on the right side, on the left side, write clarity. Clarity. And then write no and yes. So no clarity, a lot of clarity. At the bottom, write contribution. So if you're listening, you see a chart with four quadrants. Um, at the bottom left is no. At the bottom right is yes. Okay, so basically what you're doing is you're going to discern the people, and everybody, you're going to have all these people in your church. Okay? So the first one is, at the bottom left, the stowaway. The stowaway. The top left is the passenger. It's a cruise ship here, or a big ship, passenger. The top right is the crew member. And the bottom right, you're going to love, is the pirate. The pirate, okay? Now, what does this have to do with, with your church? Um, so basically, if you think of the church as a ship, you're going to realize the goal is to get people where? Where's the goal? To be crew members, okay? Crew members. Because a crew member does things differently. Crew member has a purpose. A crew member is clear on the vision, clear on the vision, clarity. And the crew member is all in contributing, okay? So they're, they're all in. You say we're going to do this, they're in. You say we're going to make disciples, when can I start? But we got three other people in our church. Most of the time we have a lot of stowaways in the church, okay? What is a stowaway in a ship? That's right. they got a free ride. They're on board, and they're hiding out below. Uh, and sometimes you don't even know they're there. These are the, the SMOs in your church. You know the SMOs, the Sunday morning onlys. Y'all have them, right, the SMOs. Uh, they show up. They, they have no clarity. Like you ask them, what's the mission and vision of our church? We have no clue. Uh, are they contributing? No way. They'll show up. Do they give? Never. Do they participate? Never. So there's no ways. Now, the thing you're going to watch about the stowaway is the stowaway is easily, uh, easily influenced. And most of the time, who influences the stowaway the most? The pirates. The pirates. Now, who are the pirates? The pirates are people who have little clarity on the mission, but they're contributing to their own vision. Anybody have church members like this? <laughs> Amen. I mean, we have. You start seeing this. You can put names on these people, right? And the pirates are those precious souls for whom Christ died. You know those people? <laughs> it's a nice way of saying the, the gift of constructive criticism, right? You know those people. Uh, they bless your heart day in and day out, right? They give you nice emails every Monday. But anyway, uh, I don't know from experience. I'm joking. But anyway, 
Okay, so the pirate, uh, the pirate, so what do you do with a pirate? When you have a pirate on a ship, what do you do with a pirate? You have them walk the plank with the love of Christ, of course, right? Okay, <laughs> with the love of Christ. And you say, you know, and you've got to be okay. In the ministry, I just want to encourage you, you need to be okay with what we call blessed subtraction. I just want to speak this. This is not my talk, but your church may be a revival away from one family leaving. I'm just telling you. And it may be the family you're trying to keep. And I don't know who that is, but I don't know who that's for. But anyway, okay, that's the pirate. So the pirate is the one you either have to say, get on board or get off board. The stowaway are, are easily impressionable, so you get the stowaways to move to passengers and then to crew members. Now, the passenger, who's the passenger? This is where most of our church is, I would say. The pirate's probably a small few. Stowaway could be a smaller few. You have a lot of passengers. The passengers are very clear on the vision. They're there because of the vision. Like, they want to reach the community. They want to make disciples. They want it, but they're not contributing to the mission, Okay. So what you do with the passengers is, the idea is you try to get them to embrace serving, embrace giving, embrace participating, and be a part of the work of the ministry. I've found, for me, this has been very helpful. Because if you don't know what you have, it's hard to diagnose a plan of action uh, for the future. Young leaders, when they go into a ministry, do three things, right? right this and I don't mean young as an age, I mean young as a new to the ministry. And in fact, I would even tell senior-level pastors or pastors who have been pastoring for a long time, you need to get to the place where you're auditing. Don't miss this. I learned this from a friend of mine, Johnny Hunt, who's a pastor in Woodstock, Georgia. And Johnny's a master of doing this. But you, you need to audit your ministry every year. Okay? Just like the, uh, just like the IRS wants you, or does an audit on an organization, or just like we have uh, auditors come in. We do it for our finances, but we don't do it for our programs. We don't do it for our practices. We don't do it for our processes. Because the reality is, the reason you're not producing the kind of disciple you want today is a direct result to the process you have in place. So if you don't like the output, look at the process. Does that make sense? Okay. So you need to audit the process. Here's what good leaders do. They do three things. And I'm doing this even now four years into Long Hollow. Number one is this. They define reality. Now, why is that important? Why do you think? Define, let's say you just came into your church. <coughs> yeah, and what, you, what I realize in most churches is they have a perception of reality, but this is reality, okay? And what people fill in between reality and their perception is they fill in something called mistrust. So they, they don't trust. So you've got to move people through to what's reality. Uh, I tell our staff every year when I do my... Um, my evaluation report, I say, I want you to act as this, this January, you're coming to our church for the first time, and you're looking at this ministry with fresh eyes. That's a cool insight to do, uh, process to do. Number one, define reality. Number two, determine your destination. A lot of people I hear say, hey, we want to make disciples who make disciples. I say, great. How are you going to do that? <laughs> we want to win the loss at all costs for Christ. I say, great. That sounds really pithy and catchy. How are you going to do that? And what do they say? I don't know. But it sounds good, and it looks great on the wall. right? looks great on the bulletin. looks great on the placard. But we don't know how. We're, so you've got to define reality. Why? So that when you get there, you know you've arrived. Then the third thing, and this is the big one, you need to determine a plan of, or develop a plan of action. Define reality, determine the outcome, develop a plan of action. Okay, second obstacle. Um, our people are not consistent in the process. You ever hear that problem? They'll start, but they fall away, right? They're engaged for a season, but, but, but they're not, but they're not sticking, with the pro sticking with the plan. Okay. I, um, I never fished before I moved to Tennessee. I mean, I fished a little in Louisiana, like deep sea fishing. But I never did a lot of freshwater fishing. What if you, anybody from this area? Okay. Three of us. Uh, there's a lot of lakes around here, and so I have two boys. I thought, what does a dad do? He fishes, right? So I go, I don't know anything about fishing, but I re realize online there's a lot of helpful um, businesses to help you. One is called the Lucky Tackle Box. Is anybody familiar with this? 
where you sign up for this subscription service where they send you seven lures a month. Seven lures, right? You think, wow, this is awesome. I don't have to go to the store. They handpick the lures. So you get like a spinner bait. Uh, you get like a chatter bait. You get like uh, different plastics and worms. And so, you know, naturally every month I go out with my boys and I, you know, tie on the worm and throw it out. Can't catch anything in three casts. So what do I do? Cut that off. Put the next lure on, right? This has got to work. You know, throw that one out. And so this goes on for about three or four months. And I don't catch a thing. Okay, so I'm like ready to throw in the towel and one Sunday on a sermon, in a sermon I tell my church, I'm like, yeah, I can't fish and I'm ready to throw in, give back my man card. I'm not a fisherman. And so one guy comes up after, his name was Salty. Jonathan Saltanus, but he called himself Salty Sportsman. He had a, he had a, it's a true story. He had a YouTube channel. He said, Pastor, I can show you how to catch fish. And I said, great. So we go out to catch fish and uh, we get out there and he's got four poles already set up and they all have the same lure on. Like, what about the spinnerbait? What, what about the crankbait? He said, no, no, no. He said, no, no. He said, I've fished this lake for five years. He said, I use one lure. It's, you want to know what the lure is, by the way? Oh, yeah. I can't tell you. But anyway. <laughs> God, come on, man. Really? But anyway. Uh, so <laughs> I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. Okay. So he shows me. It's a green fluke it's a little fluke okay it's this green little fluke and it's on there and i said oh, wait a minute what about in the winter same same lure what about in the summer same lure and here's what he told me i've never forgotten this he said you have to be confident in the lure if you want to catch fish i have one lure i use it every week every time every day now i want you to think about your church is your church a menu or a map for disciple making because I know some of you in here, if, with all due respect, if you looked at your bulletin on Sunday, with all due respect, uh, or your website with 10,000 programs. See, the problem is we got caught up with church growth strategies of the 80s and 90s, which said you grow a church through programs. So what did we do in the church? We tried to outgrow, outdo the next church around the corner by having better programs of the same. Y'all do GAs, we'll do Awanas. Y'all do women, we'll do Beth Moore. You know, no offense, but, they, but you got to have Beth Moore if you're a Christian, right? But, but anyway, so you do, you do all these little studies, okay? And so we add programs, and what happens is many of us, you ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? Anybody? Yeah. Have you ever been paralyzed by the menu? Yeah. Like, I don't even know how to order a cheesecake, much less a meal, because they got like 37 cheesecakes on the menu. So sadly, that's what most of your churches look like. And we wonder why people don't get engaged in discipleship, because here's what we ask them to do. Uh, we say, choose an option on the Golden Corral buffet, and then and you'll have a little bit of this, and, and the people don't know what to do. So here's what I've learned. When people, write this down, when people in our churches don't know what to do, they don't do anything at all. And what our people suffer from is called analysis paralysis. What does that mean? That means they, they try to analyze everything because there's so many options that they do nothing. So they're paralyzed. Now, let me tell you how I learned this principle I'm going to give you. This may be the, the one you really want to drill down on. So our ministry replicate started in 08. I was going to throw the towel in in 2012 because I was pastoring a growing church and I had this ministry and it was just way too much. And uh, I never, I didn't have any books. I didn't have a book out. And, and I met with this guy who was kind of like a life coach to me. And he said, you need to put in a book form all these principles you're teaching. And so what I tell people is I took what David Platt did with me intuitively. And I put in a book called Growing Up. So if you want to know about that, it's a book. Anybody familiar with that book, Growing Up? Okay. So, um, so that's what I put in the book. Okay. So. I'm in with this guy. I'm ready to throw in the towel. And the guy asked me this question. Now, this guy's a guy named Dave. He used to run, in Atlanta, the largest philanthropic Christian organization that gave money away in the world. It was like the Christian business, or uh, I forgot what the name of it was called, but they managed almost a billion dollars of Christian uh, men and women's assets. And he was the president, okay? And he was just transitioning to a new ministry in Chattanooga when I was there. And I had breakfast with this guy. And he asked me this question. He said, before you give up the ministry, what are the lead measures in your church and in your ministry leading people to what you want to do? 
Now, I never heard that term before, lean measures. He said, let me tell you a story. He said, uh, a few weeks ago, I was counseling and consulting with Campus Crusade for Christ. Many of you know Campus Crusade, great ministry. Uh, and he said, Campus Crusade for Christ was lamenting to me about how they had dropped in attendance in the weekly gatherings and how they were dropping in salvations. They weren't seeing as many people saved this year as last year. They weren't seeing people come this year as last year, and they wanted to see more people saved. And he said, I asked the vice president of outreach this one question. Here's what he asked this guy. He said, how many lunches are your students having with lost people every week? He said, in, in like, like a thousand campuses all over the country? He said, I don't know that number. He said, that's the number you need to figure out. And then the vice president said, why would I need to know that number? And here's what he said. The, the, lost, the lunches with lost people is a lead measure to accomplish your goal. So here's what he said. When a student in a college campus has a lunch with no strings attached, just a lunch with a lost person, it opens the door for a relationship. And when you open the door for a relationship, it opens the door for an invitation. And then when you open the door for an invitation, it opens the door to hear the gospel. And when lost people hear the gospel and under the preaching of the word of God, lost people get saved. And when lost people get saved, they come to the meeting. So the question is, how many lost people you're having lunches with? He said, that's the number I would measure. And that started me on this journey of trying to figure out lead measures. Now, let me show you the difference between lead and lag measures. Because I think in the church, we're good at measuring lag measures. Okay. <laughs> What's a, what's a lag measure? Now, okay, let me just define the terms. Lag is something today that's happening as a result of what you did six months or a year ago. Give you a perfect example, the stock market, okay? Stock market would be a lead or a lag measure. What do you think? Well, stock market's kind of a bad one because I think it could be both. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it could be both. That's probably not a good one. Uh, let's do the church. What's a lag measure? Giving is a lag measure. Why is that? Yeah, you want to increase your giving in a church? Disciple your people. See, it, it always, I always cringe when I go to churches and I visit churches and the pastor gets up and they read the bulletin. And they're like, man, we're down not giving. Y'all need to give more. Y'all, y'all, we need to, that, nobody giving in this church. That's not helpful. Because pastor, you're just creating more of a problem for something that happened months, that this is, a, this is a problem from months ago that's systemic that's happening today, right? So a lag measure is something you can't fix today, although we get pretty jazzed up about it. What's another lag measure? Baptism. What's that? Baptism. Baptisms is another one. What's another one? Attendance. Volunteering is another one. What's another? Attendance, that's a big one. Attendance. Your attendance today is the result of the work you did weeks and months ago, right? What's another one? Buildings, Buildings man, yeah. <laughs> they don't happen overnight. Okay, now here's the, here's the sad reality. And if you're leading a church or you're a leader in the church, I would say most of your time, and the reason I know is because I used to do this, most of our time is spent in our meetings trying to figure out these numbers. And the sad reality is you can't change these numbers. Now, do you count these numbers? Yes. But what if we started counting lead measures? Where if we started doing these little things today, they would have long-term impact tomorrow. So I wanna ask you, what is a lead measure that we could do today in order to have an impact tomorrow? What's that? Mission would be a good lead measure. Because when you get someone overseas or in the community and you give them an excuse, I love this, Larry Osborne taught me this. When you give someone an excuse in missions to act different, that's what missions does. Missions gives the man the excuse to be the Christian he's always wanted to be without the pressure and identity of his community. That's why missions is so important for discipleship. What's another lead measure? D groups, or we call them D groups, discipleship groups. Same thing, discipleship groups, small groups, personal evangelism, okay? Leadership training, yes, leadership training. Now, let me show you the difference or the difference that makes the difference in lead measures. One word. One word is going to help you carry out these to make this happen. Uh, intentionality, that is one I could have thought, but it's, it's a little bit deeper than that. It starts with an A. Accountability. Accountability, okay? 
and this is what you got to understand. Uh, here's a line, write this down. What doesn't get measured doesn't get accomplished. Don't miss this. You got to get this. What doesn't get measured doesn't get accomplished. I'll give you an example. Two high school football teams a while back were meeting for the biggest rivalry in town. And if you live in Middle Tennessee like we do, high school football team games are big. In fact, our local school across the street from our uh, church uh, where my kids go may win state this year. They're really good. But the, it's a big deal. In fact, we had the local high school football game against the rivalry teams. There were 7,200 people at the game. Big deal. Okay, so uh, a game like that was happening. But what happened was the week before the game, the scoreboard actually fell down because of a tornado. So it wiped the scoreboard out, and so you couldn't see real-time the score. So they noticed that at halftime, the two teams were really close. I mean, it was one touchdown away. And when they went into the second half, the game was still close. And one of the people who was writing the story said they looked up in the crowd and realized no one was paying attention to the game. They were talking. The kids were running around. People were hanging out. They were on their phones. Why? Because they couldn't see the scoreboard. What doesn't get measured doesn't get accomplished. Let me ask you in your church. Are you measuring the wins? Are you keeping track of lead measures? Are you holding people accountable uh, to do that? Number three. Here's the third one. Third obstacle. The gap between the pathway steps, and I'm going to show you right here our pathway, is too big a jump. Okay? Or I'll say it another way. We, we don't have on-ramps to get people on the pathway. And so the way you overcome that is you create a system where you're establishing on-ramps and off-ramps in the church. Okay? We teach on this, the blueprints about this, you can check it out, but let me just give you a summary of what we do at Long Hollow. And again, this system has worked in every church I've pastored, small and large. Um, and this is Jesus' model. Uh, we move people from a worship gathering to a life group, to a D group, they form out of the life groups, and out of that you change the world, okay? So life group, discipleship group, and then change the world, okay? Jesus ministered the same way. He ministered with the, with the congregation of people. I got this from Jesus. He ministered with a community group of 12. Jesus had a discipleship group of three, right? And Jesus preached to the crowds. I mean, it's not rocket science. I mean, Jesus, it's right there in the Word. I had, a, I had a pastor at our conference two weeks ago. He had pastored for 52 years, and he gave his whole life to evangelism. He got into a discipleship group from another guy who went through our process, and he said to me, I've got my ministry back for the first time. I feel like I have a, a peace and a calling about what God's called me to do. 52 years as a pastor. It's mind-blowing. Could you define life group? Yeah, yeah. So let me just find real quick. Life group would be 12 to 20, mixed gender, men and women. We do most of them off campus because we're trying to get ahead. It's a long discussion. We're trying to get ahead of what's happening in Europe which if you want to know America, you look to Europe. Right now in Europe, there 60% of Europeans just said they would never walk into a church house for any reason whatsoever. Six out of 10 said, doesn't matter what you're offering. And we think in America, that's crazy. I'll prove it to you. Would you ever go to a mosque to hear an imam talk on parenting? Anybody? For any reason. Most of I wouldn't. You may. You may be more spiritual. Maybe you did. But normally, like if you're going to learn parenting, you probably go to church, right? Because right? we're Christians. No offense to the mosque, we just wouldn't go. Would you ever go hear from an imam on how to be a better husband at the mosque? Probably not. So we have this perception of that. That's where America's getting with the church. They're just looking at us. So if that's the case, we can either stick our head in the sand and say, well, they just need to come to their church, or we can go to where they will come. Here's what I realized. Most people won't come to our church, but they will come in our driveway, and they will come in our living room, okay? So off-campus groups, 12 to 20, mixed gender, uh, they're open groups, and they can meet indefinitely. Although, although they do replicate, so that's both in, okay? Can the, it be in the marketplace? Uh, it, could, it could be... Like coffee shops? It could, but this, let me show you the D group, and it's going to answer that. The D group would be uh, three to five, okay? Uh, closed groups. 
uh, gender exclusive, men with men, women with women, for accountability, intimacy, um, you know, kind of a closed kind of discipleship group. And then the purpose of this group is to replicate after 12 to 18 months. Okay. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to go large to small, and then we're trying to go large again with the crowds. Okay. Now, let me show you. Okay. So let me show you what I mean by the on-ramps and the off-ramps. Okay. So this is a great exercise to do with your team. Uh, if there are on-ramps, thoroughfares, and off-ramps, you can do everything in your church in one of these three steps. Okay? Divide them up. This right here is an on-ramp. This right here would be a thoroughfare or pathway. Let's use the terminology. Pathway, because we call this our discipleship pathway. And this right here is an off-ramp. Okay? That's an off-ramp. Now, um, I want you to think, let's do an exercise, quick exercise. If this is A, this is B, this is C, okay? On-ramps would be like events. What's, what's, what's some other on-ramps? Worship. Worship, obviously. These are ways to get people in the church. We do dodgeball. We, we do a big a dodgeball event to get people in, in our church. Uh, service projects and service projects can actually be both on and off ramps, right? That's good. Yeah Service seasonal events uh, Father's Day Mother's Day Fall fest. Yeah, all those okay fall festival women's conference, right? Women's conference. Okay, so all these are on ramps. Let's do off ramps service projects. What else? Missions uh, off-ramp would be like mobilizing our people out of the church doors or out from the church walls. Community, yeah, culture, yeah, reaching the culture through a number of different things. Um, volunteering, that's what I was waiting for. Service in the church, that even can be an off-ramp, getting people mobilized from the pew on mission. Okay. Now, here's the one I want to get at. What is a, what is a pathway thing? Pathway is spiritual growth, moving people through a process for growth. What would be a pathway thing? Yeah, so we call it life group and D group, okay? Now, you can see our pathway lines up with this, okay? So for us, it's very simple to do this. Here's what I want to ask you. Here's the question. Based on A, B, and C, I want you real quick to number, our church does this the best. We're the best at on-ramp. Man, we can get people in the door second to none. Or maybe we, uh, we're all about missions. Our people give to missions. We give to the cooperative program. We give to mission projects. We give, we go. Or maybe we're the best at discipling our people and moving them through a process of spiritual growth. Just, just do that real quick. A, A, B, C, or B, C, A, or C, B, A. Okay? I've done this hundreds of times, uh, or a lot of times. I'll tell you what, well, let, me t let me ask you. Uh, how many people would say this is us? A, C, B. Who's that? Who's A, C, B? That's what most people are, believe it or not. Now, this is a different conference, so it would probably be skewed. But if I go to a general conference and ask general leaders in the church, they're going to say, we're great at getting people in the door. We're great at missions. We have a big back door as big as the front door. Yes. Right? Okay. Some may say we're C, A, B. Who's that? C, A, B. Okay. Who would say we're B, A, B? C. Anybody? Okay. Or BCA. These are the popular ones. Okay. Here's what's cool about this chart. It doesn't matter where you are. There's like no right or wrong. But what this chart does, and it's a great illustra illustration to do with your staff or exercise, because it shows you that you constantly have to keep the pendulum swinging. So at Long Hollow, when I first got there, my church I was at, we were highly evangelistic. We were A, C, B. We, we baptized in three years 2,800 people before I got there. This is true numbers, mind-blowing statistics. I've never heard of a church doing this. 2,800 people baptized. We led the state for three years in a row. And when they asked me to come to the church in the, in the interview process, they said, what do you think about coming into a church that's baptized that many people? And I said, I was with my wife, and I, I said, wow. I said, praise God. Um, what did you do with the people? That's what I asked them. And thank God for their honesty. They said, that's what we're talking to you about. Now, here's a little secret about our church we found out. 
in those three years, we grew. Now, the pastor before me got cancer, so all of these crazy earthquake events. Passed away at 51 and died at the height of the ministry. So all those things happened. But in those years where we baptized 2,800 people, we were essentially flat. Okay. So then what I did is I came in, I swung the pendulum BCA. I made on-ramps the lowest one, and we blew it up with discipleship, but you can't live there long. Why? Because if you don't have people coming in your church, it doesn't matter how many you have in the pews, you're not reaching laws, and then people are, so you have to swing the pendulum. So now we're back here, A, B, C, and what I say is you have to keep going back and forth through the process. Okay, number four. Um, number four is rushing the process. Somebody needs to hear this one. Rushing the process, and so the solution is we need to be patient. Um, we have a tendency at times as pastors and leaders to Write this down. Overestimate what can be done in the short term. And we underestimate what God can do over the long haul. Anybody with me? <laughs> like we rush to do these things. And I'm not saying we don't do things for the Lord. But what I'm saying is we have a tendency to, to take things that have been in our church for 30 and 40 years and we want to change them overnight. I learned a long time ago there's two ways to address a stump in the backyard. Two ways. Do you know what they are? You throw a grenade, and you can blow it up, and you can get rid of it. But there's a lot of shrapnel when people get hurt. Or you just mow around it, okay, for the glory of God, right? So all of your life groups and Sunday school classes, they won't get on board. Okay, for the glory of God, you just mow around them. But here's the thing. Discipleship is a yeah, – I say that with a lot of love, right, obviously. But discipleship is a – write this down. It is a crock-pot recipe, not a, not a microwavable meal. You need to hear that. And I want to just encourage you if you're a pastor here, because you may think, man, I don't see any, some, look at me for a moment. You're in here today and you're pastor of church and you're laboring and you're ministering and you're on staff and you're a women's minister and you're thinking, I don't see any fruit. I don't see any, in fact, pastor, we're going backwards. I want to encourage you. Somebody needs to hear this. Every true movement of Christ is always a slow mustard seed movement. Always. Listen, anybody could draw a crowd. Jesus showed us that with the Pharisees. But a true movement of God is a slow mustard seed movement. And mustard seed movements takes time. Think about how long it took for you to get to where you are. Can I get a witness? <laughs> right? I mean, you know my story. Um, so it takes time. I heard a, a professor one time get asked by a student. The student asked him, um, how can I get through your class quicker? Scotty, you like this, being in, in, in schooling. Uh, Scotty's a good friend of mine, Scotty Kessler here, uh, discipled by Dr. Robert Coleman. You guys know Dr. Coleman, but yeah, it's a Scotty and I friend. But anyway, at Faith Seminary. But anyway, so uh, they said, Professor, how can I go through the, the process quicker? I don't want to take your class the full term. I want to go faster. And the professor said, son, what do you want to be in life, a squash or an oak tree? He said, why do you ask? He said, well, it takes six weeks to produce a squash. It takes 30 years to grow an oak tree. Your choice. So I say that to say, be patient. Let me show you, I, I don't do this to impress you. I want to just show you the potential or, or, or the, the possibility of what could happen with a slow micro, I mean, crock pot kind of mentality of discipleship in your church. And I say this from experience. So when I went to Long Hollow, we shifted the pendulum to all discipleship. We neglected in a sense, not willingly, but just didn't put fuel in the fire of evangelism. And we swung the pendulum to discipleship. Within one year, we had, this is true numbers, 1,653 people in one year in D groups of three to five. Now you think about that, that's a lot of people in groups of three to five. We were blown away. I started doing the math, okay. 2,500, 4,800, I mean we're gonna be at, you know, in three years. In two years I grew that number back down to 903. <laughs> it takes a lot of work to get there, I'm just telling you. A lot of skill to go from there to there, okay. <laughs> I tell you that to encourage you. We learned a lot. Of, <laughs> I'm discouraged, but it encourages you. Uh, we learned, here's what we learned. We learned to start doing what we teach, which is be patient. Okay. So here's what I want to show you. In my, in my church that I did this previously, when I started this movement, it was 2009. When I got into the church, there were 12 people in discipleship relationships of three to five. Twelve. Me, guy who's going to speak here after me, Gus Hernandez, you want to hear him uh, he and I were at the church, my previous church. He serves with me now, but we had two groups. I had two, he had one, 12 people. 
2010, I decided to disciple the staff. We moved it to about 32. Okay, so it went up, discipled the staff. 32, at the end of that, I challenged some of the staff members to now replicate the process with people in the church. So in 2011, number grew to 65. 2012, the number grew to 125. 2013, the number grew to 255. Now, here's the thing you got to understand. 2013, I wrote the book Growing Up, and I challenge, I keep in mind, we're five years in, not much to write home about. Every week, week in and week out, meeting with guys, my wife's meeting with women, ladies are meeting with women, and we're just slowly plodding along. In 2013, I wrote the book Growing Up, and I challenged our church to find a group of three to five, read the book for 12 weeks. Now, this is why I said 12 weeks. If you tell people 12 months, they don't do that. They don't know what they're going to do next month. But they can do 12 weeks, right? The number grew from 255 to 787. And these are real names, real numbers. 2015, the number grew to 1167. And we felt like in 2016, the year I left, we were going to be over 1500. Now, why do I tell you that? Not to impress you, but to impress upon you just how God uses exponential growth in his favor. This is a multiplicative movement here, not an addition strategy. Here's the, final, here's the final one. And this is more of a personal one that I've learned from burning out myself uh, personally. Uh, the biggest obstacle, I think, for many pastors is themselves and leaders in church with men and women. The biggest problem is us. So the biggest obstacle is we're too busy. And I'm not talking about our people. I'm talking about us at times. And so the solution is to rest. R- write this line down. Self-care is never selfish. It's, I mean, soul care, sorry. Soul care is never selfish, self-care, soul care. It's always strategic. See, in the ministry, you and I have a tendency to take the greatest commandment and only do half of it. Because we love others well. We do not love ourselves well. And I used to say years ago, I want to be a bottle rocket for Jesus, right? I want to burn... Burn out for the Lord, for the glory of God. I'm just going to burn out at the end. And that sounds spiritual, but that is bad stewardship. Because if the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which it is, then God has given us this temple to steward for his glory. And what happens is in the ministry, I find this so often, we're really good, and you may be here, at inflicting harm to the body and justifying it for the cause of Christ. And so what do we do? We work. We burn out, we're overwhelmed, we're, we're, we're burdened in, in life. And so uh, 2012, I got to the point of, of just about burnout. Um, went to the doctor, uh, I was having feelings of passing out, I was overwhelmed, I was pastoring a church, I was finishing my degree, I wrote a book that year, had a young child in the home, and uh, they put a pacemaker in it at 35. I got a pacemaker in at 35. And, after putting the pacemaker in, I thought, I'm, I'm healed. I'm great. Now I'm a bionic man. I can go back in, you know, work again. And God said, no, no, you're a slow learner. You didn't learn. So started having the feelings again. And uh, I went to a doctor in Chattanooga who was a, I couldn't figure out what happened. So I went to a renal board certified cardiologist. Uh, so he's a kidney doctor with a heart doctor. And he basically said to me, he said, Robbie, your problem is you're having panic attacks. I said to him, Doc, you don't understand, I, I'm not scared of anything. What are you, I'm a pastor. He said, no, you're having panic attacks. He said, you have literally burnt yourself out. You had this living dormant, and it took burnout in the ministry, inflicting harm in your body for it to come to light. And here's what he said. He said, you have a chemical imbalance, and if you don't get on medicine, you won't live. I said, medicine? I'm a pastor. We don't take, we don't take medicine. We pray. We trust God. Amen. And all those things are good. We go to support groups. We go to counselors. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I pushed back on that, and I'm like, I'm not going to do that. And finally, reluctantly, I decided to take medicine. And I'm just, I don't know who needs to hear this, but I took medicine, and it changed my whole life. I went to my dad, who had struggled with OCD and depression and anxiety from his mom for years and years. And he said, can the doc see me? I said, sure, I think so. So I called the doctor, who was retired, and he graciously saw my dad. I went back the next week to the doctor, and the doctor said to me, with my dad's permission, he said, I have worked on patients for 50 years. He said, I've never met a man like your dad who has the problems he's had not resort to alcohol, drugs, or suicide. 
short, short story. October of last year, I had the privilege of, of renewing the 50-year vows of my parents in my backyard, which is a long story. My parents, I was raised Catholic, Hurricane Katrina, lost everything. God used Katrina, something so horrific, to bring my whole family to faith in Christ, which is kind of cool. A really cool story. But anyway, so my dad now is my best friend, number one disciple. So we're in the home at my house, about to walk out. The whole family's in the backyard. My dad, who's not an emotional guy, uh, about 6'4", kind of a big guy, he leans over and he says, um, he says, son, um, I got to thank you. He said, you saved my life twice. I said, um, how did I, I save your life? He said, well, you saved me the first time with, with salvation. I said, well, let me get your theology. I didn't say that. I didn't say it. Like, I'm not the one saved, right? I said, Jesus saved. He said, you know what I mean. But here's what he said. He said, you saved my life the second time by showing me it was okay not to be okay. And you let me go to the doctor and it saved my life. So here's what I want you to see. In the ministry, this is what I tell you from somebody who's been there. In the ministry, it's easy to fall in love with the ministry of Jesus and out of love with the Jesus of our ministry. What do I mean? The ministry is a lot of gifts that come with that. There's a lot of blessings. That, there's a lot of accolades and respect in the ministry. But don't get to the place when you are validated, somebody's where you're validated based on what you do, not who you are. Ministry is received from Christ, not achieved for Christ. Amen? Like we receive the ministry. That's why there's no room to boast. When guys are boasting about their churches and boasting about, I'm like, bro, you didn't write this book. <laughs> Newsflat, right? Jesus wrote the book. Now, how, how can we boast, right? So the Lord showed me that. And here's what I think. I think the challenge for us is... Um, if you, anybody have a Bible, I'm going to show you an interesting thing I learned about running on empty. Anybody have a Bible I can use? I should have mine. Actually, I got one here. Here's one. The kid's Bible. Here's what, the kid's Bible. It'll still work. <laughs> here, here's it. Wayne Cordero showed me this. He wrote a whole book on it. Here's what he said. Here's the problem for us. This is what happens. The way it's supposed to work in ministry as a disciple maker is this way. And here's what happens. The Bible becomes a tool to use and not a treasure to behold. And I don't know who he needs to hear that, but I'm just telling you from someone who wants to finish well, I think like a lot of us, that uh, don't ever get so burnt out in ministry where you're no earthly good uh, for the ministry. Um, again, I just want to, uh, we might, I don't know if we have any time for anything. Well, how, how much time do we have left, Jonathan? Five minutes, great. That's more than normal. Okay, uh, Jonathan's going to give out uh, Jonathan, bring those books up, please, if you don't mind. And, and these books are for sale outside, I think, too. It just came out two weeks ago. Uh, David Platt wrote the forward to it. Here's my new book, Recovered. I'll give this out. We have, what, six books. Here's a book, How an Accident, Alcohol, and Addiction Led Me to God. So, Jonathan, you give these out. You just choose. That way I'm not biased. You choose, Jonathan. Mix it up. Mix it up. Mix it up, Jonathan. <laughs> Mix it up. All right, any questions? Sorry, any questions? We've got a front row here, Jonathan. Throw me one for the front row. Throw me one for the front row. Okay. Here you go. For the front. There you go. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, anybody else? Anybody have a question? Obstacle number three. Yeah, yeah the on-ramps and off-ramps. What I wanted to do is I just wanted you to see that you did need to assess where you are in the church in order to determine where you're spending most of your time. Now, the thing about on-ramps and off-ramps and thoroughfares, there's different seasons for this. Like in the church world, you know, the busy seasons for lost people to come and, and invite lost people are January and fall kickoff. So you want to plan all of your things around like big event series around those things. Um, and so at that time, the pendulum flows to A. But then in the winter, then when, when people are growing spiritually, then you focus, you see what I'm saying? So you just want to see where you are in, in the process. Uh, it's just a kind of a diagnostic tool is really what it is. Is there an acceptable level of burnout? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, why are you asking? <laughs> Man. Well, well, let's be honest. Okay. Let, here's the thing. I think in this room, most of us are either have been there or are susceptible to that. Okay. So I'm preaching a series at my church. You can go online, listen to it. It's been, believe it or not, it's been the most downloaded and interacted with series I've done. And I think it's just because the reality of it. it's called real life. 
and I preached three weeks ago. I shared my in-depth story about anxiety. Uh, I shared about my anxiety struggle. And then two weeks ago, I shared about depression that leads to suicide. And uh, here's a cool God story. I prayed the night before I was going to preach this sermon series. And let me tell you, the response time has been overwhelming, which was so cool because to come forward in a church and say, I have anxiety and depression is a big deal. One service we had, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, we had maybe, what, Jonathan, four to five hundred in one service come for prayer. It was mind-blowing. And it just showed me this is where people are. Last week I preached on um, social media and the Internet and your cell phone. So if you love your phone, don't watch that one. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> uh, we made our church walk in and put their phones in a bag and, seal the, and put the bag away for the entire course of the message. And then I share with them at the end a modern phenomenon today called nomophobia. Have y'all heard of this? No mobile phone phobia where people, it's a diagnosable issue where people can't be, and I'll prove it to you. You ever left your phone at home and you had to drive back no matter how far away you were to get the phone? Amen. Okay. And then this week I'm preaching on resting and Sabbathing. I've been studying Sabbathing lately. It's just been so, so if you listen to none of them, you might want to listen Sunday on Sabbathing. Um, but yeah, I think just awareness is, is helpful, you know, just like, hey, I'm starting to burn out. The greatest person to help me is my wife, because she can see things in my life that I'm not susceptible to see, because I'll burn. I mean, I, I love adrenaline. Anybody with me? I love adrenaline. I love preaching. I love, but I can't, my soul can't. Write this down. This is another cool thing to think about. Don't let your soul, oh, don't let your role outpace your soul. That's a good one. Don't let your role outpace your soul. Don't let you, your output outpace your input. That's what I'm getting at here. And, and again, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you because I'm, I got a PhD in workaholism too. Amen. Anybody else? Yeah. Okay, so we do one-on-one -on -one discipleship sometimes. But we opt for not doing it all the time because, one, one and we're dealing with this now, you can transmit heresy one-on-one. -on -one. If I'm your disciple maker and I'm telling you you have to blank to be a Christian... You don't know if that's right or wrong. We have an issue of this in our church right now. But if you have a group of three to five, you're going to say, bro, that don't feel right. Like, I don't know, but that ain't right. So that's the first thing. One-on-one -on -one can be a counseling session. One-on-one -on -one is very hard to reproduce. You look at me as Paul, and you think, there's no way I can reproduce Paul, right? So I, read a whole, I wrote a, whole about, a lot about this in a book called Rediscovering Discipleship, where I have eight reasons not to. Now, do we do one-on-one? -on -one? Yes. Out of the group, never in place of the group. So our group, my group of three to five, one of the guys with me is going to be in my group next year. My group of three to five will meet, uh, and they always say, can you meet me for coffee? Talk about my marriage. Can you stay late to talk about my, my children? Always happens. but it's no And then the final reason is multiplication over addition. So if I'm discipling one guy this year, one guy this year, one guy this year, one guy this year, that's four guys in four years. Now here's the trump card. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not a word. But anyway, here, here's the ace in the hole, sorry. <laughs> anyway, here's the ace in the hole. The problem is uh, there was a ministry in Chattanooga that did only one-on-one, -on -one, and they were honest one time with us, and we asked them, what's the reproduction rate? You ready for this? They said 25%. To which we asked, so let me get this straight. You're producing a disciple once every four years. I don't know about you, man. There's no time to wait for this thing, amen? Like, the Lord could come back any moment. Anybody else? One more question. I think we're... Well, that's a great question. How do you replicate? We hear this all the time. Okay, so how do you replicate the group is the question. Yeah, okay, two things you got to remember. Number one is they never will replicate. In fact, think of the disciples. Jesus even left like a bottle rocket in the sky with the angels. What were the guys doing in Acts 1? Like the angel had to come back and say, boys, y'all need to go. Like, like go. <laughs> He's not coming back, you know. So even the disciples didn't want to replicate, okay. But the second thing is I find... If you sign a covenant in the back of growing up, there's a covenant. Make it your own. Use it. If you sign the covenant on the front end, that does two things. It helps you confront them if they're in sin through the group. It helps you confront them if they're lackadaisical and don't show up. But it also says, the last line is, I will pray about reproducing this group at the end. So, in November, here's a good insight here. I do this with my groups. In November, we start listing on the board all the names of the guys in the group. And then we start praying through names of potential people we can disciple in the year. Okay, this is November. In December, we approach those people after praying for a month. And then at the end of December, we have a prayer service. The whole last meeting's on our faces, praying by name 
for all these people, and then we cut it off. Remember, you got to kick them out the boat and say, boys, it's over. And here's the thing, though. Don't miss this. Seems kind of harsh. My time with David Platt was great, but it fades, and you guys know this, it fades in comparison to the time I've discipled, discipled guys, and they've gone on for Christ. There's no greater joy. Scott, you talk, I love my discipleship time, but the guys I've discipled, when they do great things for God, you guys know this, there's no better feeling in life. So, Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure to check out and download the free visual primer for the book, Disciple Making Culture. You can find this at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Until next time.